that's, I don't know, that's just breathtaking to me. It's life-giving. Okay, Matthew 4, why don't you open your Bibles? Matthew 4, we're going to look at 4.23 through 5.12. Here's what we're going to do, and it's only going to work if you do it, so really it's up to you. You ready? You're a first century young man. That's who you are right now at this moment. You live in Israel, specifically the Galilee region, which is the northwest corner of Israel, so think Oregon. Galilee is known for its revolutionary passion. <laughs> so you and the people there, you, you value bravery, boldness, heroism, sacrifice, discipline, toughness, grit, action. Get her done, right? Uh, all for, in, in, in terms of leadership, in terms of all for God, all for nation, and all for your family. This is the stuff of life for you. It's the meaning of life. This is the blessed life. But your legs don't work. You're paralyzed from the waist down. You will never, ever, ever achieve greatness in Galilee. You're already forgotten. I know that was hard for the women to be a man, so we're going to go the other way. and We're going to say, now you're a first century woman. You live in Israel specifically. You live in the heart of all of Israel. You live in Jerusalem where everything happens in Jerusalem. Whatever culture, whatever uh, dress, whatever <laughs> happens, happens there and goes to the rest of the country. Uh, it's, it's in the southwest region. So think Phoenix, think Arizona, stuff like that. Jerusalem is known for its religious passion. There, you and everyone there, you value holiness. You value... You value obedience and devotion to God and His law in all things and all of life. Holiness is what life is all about. It's the meaning of life. And the reward is a blessed life. A reward is that you become yourself. A reward is that you get God's blessing. You get shalom. You get wholeness. You get completeness. But you're barren. You can't have children. You are an unblessed person. And everyone in Israel knows it, especially your husband. And then Jesus comes to Galilee. And Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Please stand for the hearing of God's word, Matthew 4, 23 through 5, 12. I'll encourage you to take up your Bible if you brought it with you, whether that's on paper or on your device. Uh, there are Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you if you want to follow along or you can use the screens. The... 
scripture this morning is taken from Matthew's gospel. Um, be reading beginning in chapter 4 and verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's be seated. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would shine on the page. We thank you. This is what you authored through human authors, 100% your words, 100% human words. Would you shine on the page? Would you give clarity to the mind, give realness to the heart, release the power of this passage? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so biblical narratives, those are stories. This is what the Gospels are. Release their point or they release their power through the setting. You know what the setting is? Places. So if you're coming to a Gospel, you're coming to a narrative, and you're going to try to find the power in it, and you're going to try to find the point of it, you go to the setting. You look at the places in the text. You also look at the characters, which are the people in the text. So if people talk, their dialogue is huge, absolutely huge. You also follow the plot line, which is the storyline, which is the conflict and the resolution tension that runs through the storyline. You want to find the point. You want to find the power in narrative. That's where you go because the goal of narrative is to take you there. Narrative is not designed to tell you about it. It's designed to take you there. It's not designed to define it and delineate it and describe it for you. It's designed to take you there. It's not designed to fill your head. It's designed to take you there. 
take you there in such a way that you don't just see the shattered paralytic. You actually feel the shattered parts of your own mind. Take you there so you don't just see the barren woman, the unblessed woman, but that you feel deep in your bones the unbarren parts of your life, the unblessed parts of your life. Take you there. Why? Why is this passage designed to take you there? To make you feel the shattered parts of your life, to make you feel the, the barren, unblessed parts of your life. Why? Why do that to us? Here's the answer. Because impoverished people get Jesus. Impoverished people get Jesus. Jesus makes sense to impoverished people. Look who the people are that are gathering on this mountain to hear Jesus. Look at the people who are attracted to Jesus. Look at the people that Jesus gathers like this, this new kind of better, bigger Moses to teach and preach the greatest sermon in human history, right? Spurgeon aside. The answer is found in 423 through 425. Here are these people. Here are the people that gather around Jesus. Verse 23, people with all kinds of bodily diseases. All kinds, right? Verse 23, people with all kinds of afflictions. The focus on afflictions here is your inner person, depression, mental illness, anxiety disorders. The way that you think and process, the way your feelings work, everything that goes on on the internal reality that afflicts you as an inner person. Those folks. Verse 24, people with every kind of sickness and pain. So this is every physical, emotional, and spiritual sickness and pain, which includes and is further defined by stuff like oppression, spiritual oppression, like demonic oppression, it says in 24. You go on to 24 again, it says those with epilepsy. That's brain issues. Then you got paralysis. That's body issues. So impoverished people. Impoverished people gather to Jesus. Impoverished people get Jesus. Impoverished people see Jesus makes sense to them. This is why impoverishment is the first thing that Jesus teaches in this sermon. Do you see that? It's the very first thing. He says, verse 2, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. I mean, this is an incredible picture. I wish it, the image is unbelievable. It's like he's opening his mouth because everything in the Bible hangs on the word of God. God spoke, let there be light. And then you have John saying, man, in the beginning was this word, <laughs> this speaking of God. And Jesus opens his mouth. He speaks, right? Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poverty in spirit, that, that's a good translation. Blessed are people who have nothing before God. Blessed are people who have nothing but nothing. Blessed are people who have nothing but need. Blessed are people who have diseases and sicknesses and pains and brokenness and shattered parts and unblessed parts of their life. 
Blessed are those people. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Impoverished people get Jesus. That's the point. So it goes like this. If we don't, if we don't see ourselves in this group of people, Jesus won't make any sense to us. The way narrative works is it takes you there, and it takes you there to identify with the particular characters in there because every character in a narrative that's recorded shares a human condition, and that human condition is your human condition and my human condition. Everyone has this mutual human condition. And I know we have this propensity. We read David and Goliath, and we do go there. We go there, and we're David, right? We saw that. But maybe we'll get the original tent of the David and Goliath story if we see that we're the Philistines. Or Goliath himself. So in here, you have to, we have to, if we're going to get this, the original tent right, if we're going to be taken there, we've got to see that we are these people. And if we don't see ourselves in the group of these people, grace won't make any sense to us. Jesus won't make any sense to us. The kingdom of heaven won't make any sense to us. Okay, there's an Academy Award winning film, Silver Linings Playbook. Who's seen it? I just want to know what kind of group we got. If you haven't seen it, you need to go see it. Um, Pat, played by Bradley Cooper, is a husband on a restraining order. He's just been let out of a mental institution for previously undiagnosed but now diagnosed bipolar disorder. His story becomes entwined with Tiffany, played by Jennifer Lawrence, who's an also equally messed up person, but has agreed to help Pat. Pat is after the silver lining. Pat is after the healing. Pat wants to get his life fixed and back to what it should be. Later in the movie, uh, there's a sort of a breakthrough because what ends up happening is he's just not doing a real job of getting his life fixed. Pat's really messed up. And you wonder, is there a silver lining for Pat? Pat's wondering if there's a silver lining. In the movie, they're in a diner, and it's Halloween, and so here's Jen uh, Jennifer. Is it Jennifer and this person? No, this is Tiffany and, and Bradley Cooper's character, Pat. They're talking. They're in a diner. It's Halloween, and every, it's such incredible symbolism. Everyone around them is wearing masks, costumes. And in this moment of rare clarity, <laughs> Tiffany says, you think I'm crazier than you? And Pat was busted. This messed up person thought she's the crazy one. Right? Later to his therapist, he's, record, he's talking to, he's so impacted by what happened, he's talking to his therapist and he says, now there's a lot of bleeps in here, so I'm going to bleep, but I'll fill in some words that might sort of allow us to follow. Um, she likes the part of herself. We're going to bleep, we're going to say messed up part of herself. She likes the messed up part of herself, along with the other parts of herself. And can I say the same? End quote. And his therapist says, well, can you? Can you say the same? <laughs> Pat says, is that bleep, right? You're asking me, you're asking me that question with all my crazy, sad bleep? Are you nuts? Ethan Richardson says, anyone's desire and ability to disassociate themselves from the truth about themselves is a scary power. It's a power that has the 
It's a scary power that's so scary it destroys intimacy and relationships and prevents healing help, end quote. If we don't see ourselves and feel deeply about ourselves that we're impoverished people, Jesus won't make any sense to us. We won't get him. The kind of people that like Jesus and around Jesus are impoverished people. So where do we do this? You know, what areas of our life do we do this? Do we miss the impoverished parts of our life that we end up missing Jesus? Are there specific areas that we do this? Let's look what the text says. I want you to look at verse 4. This is the next verse. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning is what you do when you feel the pain of loss. When you and I suffer pain, you have three choices. We have three choices. We can either stuff the pain. That's choice number one, and that's usually the way religious way of dealing things happens. We want to be the stoic. We don't want that pain being around, and so we, we stuff it. And then you have an irreligious response, which is those that, that are not as concerned about appearances and are not as concerned about standards and, and being tough or, or being a good Christian or whatever it is, and, and they're more about surrendering to the pain. So that the pain actually overwhelms and begins to oppress and actually begins to control their lives. Stuff it, surrender to it, or mourn it. Or mourn it. Feel the weight of it. Feel the, the helplessness and powerlessness of pain. Honestly process the difficulty and the desperation and the darkness and the loss of it. Mourn it. Impoverished people are mourning people. They process their pain. Mary Zoll tells of this time she was listening to a friend of hers who's going through a really, really hard time. And, and as she's doing so, uh, telling her story, she's listening to her friend, and her friend would come to the verge of tears like four or five times in the span of like five minutes in their conversation. But every time she got to the verge of tears, she would fight it back and stuff it down and continue and would say this, but I know I have so much to be thankful for, and I know God loves me, and that's all that matters, end quote. And Mary's listening to this, and she says to herself, she thinks to herself, and she says, how easily we as Christians use faith to ward off pain, use God to ward off pain. Finally, she couldn't take it anymore, and she says, you know what, hold on, hold on. Honey, you need a good cry. You've lost so much. You will not be able to see clearly until you mourn the losses. Cry until you cannot cry anymore. And for God's sake, don't think your tears are a sign of faithlessness or ingratitude to God. Because didn't Jesus say, blessed are those who mourn? End quote. When we feel impoverishment of pain, notice what happens. You're comforted in this weird spiritual dynamic 
of being an impoverished person that actually gets their pain. Pain has the ability to actually level us to who we really are and actually make us who we really are, which is needy, nothing people before the God of all comfort, before the God of all mercies, and for the God who actually loves impoverished people. And so when we become impoverished, we actually get comforted. When you mourn, you get comforted. And he might do it through the scriptures, through the gospel. He might do it through other people and other ways, but he, he does it. And you still might have your pain. Lack of mourning means Jesus doesn't make sense to us. Because if we're not mourning, we're stuffing it, so we're more like a religious person. Stiff upper lip. I can do it. Pain is weakness. Heavens, I can't be weak because then who am I? I'm not a justified person. I'm now a disapproved person, whether to culture, to my parents, to myself. Lack of mourning means we don't get Jesus, and then we might go the irreligious way, which would, I'm just going to surrender to it. It's gonna, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to let pain be my functional God in life. I'm going to let pain dictate how I think and feel. I'm going to let pain tell me how to live. I'm going to let pain control my marriage and my friendships. I'm going to let pain control the way I act at work. I'm going to let pain control what I do at 2 in the morning. I'm going to let pain control why I abuse abusive substances. Lack of mourning means Jesus doesn't make sense to us. We miss out on being comforted. Now, I cannot, and we cannot in our time together, do all eight of Jesus' main points. Uh, historically, they've been called the Beatitudes, but I do want you to see something. Uh, we'll do the rest of them on Wednesday nights. So again, on Wednesday nights, we go deeper into the text. On Wednesday nights, we, we throw away rakes and we grab shovels and we start digging into the text. And I give you all the sweat that goes on in the text throughout the week that we can't necessarily do all up here. But I do want you to see something. Notice how it begins and ends. The first one and the last one begin and end the same way. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's called in the literary device called an inclusio. You know what that means? It's a bookend. That means everything from beginning to end and everything in between is the same big idea. It's one single dominating point. And the big idea is impoverished people get Jesus. That's the point. So no matter where you land in each of these, quote, beatitudes, the underlying structure, the superstructure is impoverished people get Jesus. So look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is a relational word. So mercy only comes in the context of relationships. You can't have mercy without relationships. But mercy is very unique. It has two components to it. So you got mercy. It's a relational word. But this relational word has two components. Component number one is there's forgiveness. Component number two is a generous heart towards people's flaws and failures. So mercy is a relational word that moves towards people, knows they're messed up, knows they're flawed, knows they have their faults, and are incredibly generous towards them and forgive them. That's a merciful person. I don't know about you, but I hear that. That's easier said than done. 
Anyone that's been in a relationship knows that's easier said than done. Anyone that's ever been hurt by another person knows that's easier said than done. In fact, one author writes, so many relationships that are born in love end in bitterness where one or both parties feel scrutinized and trapped. Being merciful is easier said than done. David's all, I don't know if this is a, a, a mom or a son of Mary's all, no clue. But he writes, he writes this about a merciful person. We don't need to be made more aware of our alienating traits. That just produces alienation, he says. We need to be shown mercy. Think about it. Have you ever been given space when it comes to your personality? How did it make you feel? Odds are you felt loved and you wanted to spend more time, not less, with the one who showed mercy. You loved them in return because blessed are the merciful. But being merciful is easier said than done. What about those of us that can't keep our big mouths shut? What about those of us that it's just instinctive to pick and peck and to point and to judge and to critique and to evaluate and to scrutinize? Always on a scanner, humming and checking the people we love, the people we work with, people we come across in our day. What about people like that, people like us, that aren't merciful? Impoverished people know mercy is impossible. Impoverished people know that it's easier to say and talk about mercy than it is to actually be merciful. And that's where impoverished people start. They start with confession. They start with confessing that they are not merciful people before God. They start with admitting that their life has no mercy. That when they stand before the virtue of being merciful, they're a nothing. They're always in need. And that's what an impoverished person in mercy looks like. When we feel the impoverishment of our mercy, of mercy, notice what happens. Look at the rest of the passage. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You receive mercy. You get Jesus when you see the impoverishment, that you're impoverished in mercy. Now, I know all of you in the room right now, I know this. Everyone in this room is thinking, Jeff, that's not what it says, and you are right. So you're going to have to choose between the Bible or me. I'd advise you to take the Bible every time. It says the merciful receive mercy, doesn't it? That's what the text says. It does not say the unmerciful receive mercy. But remember the big idea is impoverished people get Jesus. Impoverished people get Jesus. If we're not impoverished, Jesus will not make any sense to us. And so the hidden structure behind being a merciful person is someone that realizes they're not merciful. And they look on the cross and they see Jesus receives no mercy. And they see Jesus receives the full mercilessness of God. Jesus doesn't get one scrap of leniency. He doesn't get one spark of forgiveness. He gets not one drop of compassion. He gets no relief. 
why? Or better, for whom? For those who have no mercy. For those who are full of mercilessness. And when we see Jesus received no mercy on the cross because of your and my no mercy, we become merciful. We become merciful people. We live in the world of mercy. Jesus makes sense to us. The kingdom of heaven makes sense to us. Not the lack of being merciful and the lack of meek. You see meek? Meek is in verse 5. I'm just going to run through these real quick. This is how we're going to end. The lack of not having these things in our life. That's what I'm going to get to, okay? So the lack of meek. Meek is, meek is not this little tender man walking around holding sheep. That's not meek. If that's the case, what about those of us that don't have that personality? Oh, I'm sorry, dude. You're on the outside, right? Meek means, when you look at the, the, the lexicon, meek means to be self-forgetful. Meek means not being self-preoccupied. Meek or gentleness means you're just not thinking about yourself. Your preoccupation is off yourself. And so to, to not have a self-forgetfulness about you, to have a, a self-obsession about you, that would be the opposite. All right? So to not be merciful, to not be meek, to be lacking and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Do you see that? That's verse 6. That's the next one. Now, I want you to know in the original language, it says the righteousness. So it's a little better in the English language. It's like this in the original language. It's hungering and thirsting for the righteousness. And there's only one, the righteousness in all the cosmos. And it's God's righteousness. And it's the most prized commodity in the cosmos. And to hunger and thirst for that, for the righteousness. Notice what happens to you. You get stuffed. You get well fed. It's this hunger and thirst for righteousness that is like the righteousness of God is so palatable, so real that it's lingered. It's likened to a hungering and thirsting in your body. Your soul hungers and thirsts for it. That's the reality here. Because you don't have it. And I don't have it. And the result is, is when that righteousness takes root in our life, you actually become righteous yourself and you pursue and hunger and thirst for wholeness or completeness or what's called shalom if you're in Hebrew in all areas of life. And that, yes, that includes social justice righteousness. You hunger and you thirst for it. If, if this is lacking in us, if this is not true of us, let's go to the next one, pure in heart, verse 8. This is someone who doesn't trust God or treasure God. A pure heart is not, a pure, there is no such thing as a pure heart. But a pure heart is one that trusts God and trusts Jesus. And that's where the pureness comes from. But the, the functional description of purity is a heart that trusts Jesus. A heart that trusts God, that treasures God. That's what purity means. If we are lacking in that, let's keep moving. Verse 9, a peacemaker. A peacemaker is, is someone that, that heals relationships. And so if we're not healing relationships, if we're not about the healing of relationships, 
We're going to keep going. Persecuted, verse 10. This is not being persecuted because you're a jerk. This is being persecuted because you love Jesus and his salvation. This is being persecuted because you love grace so much that, that religious people get annoyed at you and marginalize you. You love grace so much and you love Jesus and what he's done so much. You put so much stock in there. You find life and everything in what Jesus has performed, what Jesus has accomplished, what Jesus has done. You do that so much that the irreligious person just gets, who are just, the irreligious person can't comprehend the grace because the irreligious person is looking for life in themselves, not in any sort of grace or unperformed world of reality. Maybe you get martyred. Maybe you lose a friendship. If we are not meek and not being hungry and thirsting for righteousness, pure in heart, a peacemaker, persecuted, it means Jesus doesn't make sense to us. That's the world of Jesus. That's the people that gather and are attracted to Jesus. Um, that's the people Jesus gathers. And so here's the deal. If you don't feel like any of these measure in your life, welcome to the world of impoverishment. Can you admit that? Let's start there. Because impoverished people get Jesus. He makes sense to them because Jesus gives and shows up and teaches and heals and justifies and changes and transforms and puts back together again impoverished people. Amen.